Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chicago's Legal Latte, a series of podcasts brought to you by Lavelle Law Limited. Throughout this series, the attorneys from Lavelle Law will share their answers to questions about a variety of topics for individuals and small businesses. To participate in today's discussion, you can email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com. The economy has uh, held its slow but uh, steady growth pattern in recent months. Uh, jobs reports throughout the year have been relatively good, a little shaky recently, but um, as we get into the fourth quarter, we're starting to reach that point in which uh, certain industries have a fair amount of movement. This is the time that uh, certain people wrap up a year and, and then make their jump to someplace different. Uh, hi, everybody. Jim Mitchell back with you. And as you might have guessed, jobs play a central role in our discussion today on Chicago's Legal Latte. What we're going to focus on will be the certain uh, what are called restrictive covenants in employee contracts, such as uh, non-compete clauses. Now, while these factors aren't really uncommon, uh, we hear about them a lot, we see a, a lot of discussion about them, uh, they often have to meet certain challenges in court and in other areas where they might be scrutinized. So to help us separate fact from fiction, we're going to talk to attorney Jennifer Burt. Um, Jennifer, very well-versed in the topic through her work at Lavelle Law, and I'm sure she'll provide a great primer for us. Always good to talk to her. Jennifer, I know you're busy, so thanks for taking the time to join me today. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. So um, what, as you see in your work, you know, what, what, what are the different types of uh, restrictive covenants that might be included in an employee contract? There are generally three types of restrictive covenants in an employment contract. The first is a covenant not to compete. The second is a covenant not to solicit. And the third is a covenant not to disclose confidential information. Okay. And I want to kind of go through those and particularly talk about the non-compete today, but we'll touch on each of them. Now, you gave us that that brief introduction of the the three common types. And um, I I know that they're sort of a fact of life in certain industries in particular. um, But as often as they get thrown around and get included, how do the courts look at these? I mean, are they are they generally accepted, or are there certain things about them that the courts have to be cautious about? The courts generally carefully scrutinize any restrictive covenant. And the reason for that is because the restrictive covenant affects competition, and it contains at least a partial restraint on trade. On the one hand, you have an employee who has a general right to pursue their chosen occupation and to compete. And on the other hand, you have an employer with the right to protect its legitimate business interests from unfair competition. Yeah, so two sides. And I think that's one of the great things about a discussion like we're having today is we're going to be able to look at at both sides of the topic and and, uh, kind of present both views and and see where they might meet in the middle. So let's let's talk about uh, being an employer um, you want certain things protected, and so uh, as you prepare to hire an employee or present a contract like this, what should I be doing as that employer to make sure that whatever I write in the contract is, is really going to be enforceable down the road? You have to make sure that the restrictive covenant is necessary to protect the employer's legitimate business interests, that it is limited in terms of duration, geographic scope, and prohibited activity, and that is that it is supported by what's called consideration, and that that consideration is sufficient. 
Okay. Um, and, and let's start at the top there. And, and actually, before I do that, I want to circle back to one other question. When, when we talk about enforcement, uh, I just was curious here. Um, obviously, if an employee says, I'm leaving, I'm going somewhere else, uh, this would be, you know, certain factors have to be met uh, in terms of their contract. Is it the same if someone is, is terminated? I mean, do, do the do the covenants provide the same coverage for the employer, whether someone chooses to leave or whether they're forced to leave for performance or other reasons? It can go either way. Um, okay. Termination may be more difficult to enforce. However, mm-hmm. uh, the agreement itself, it's whatever the parties agree to. Okay. So it could go either way. All right. Now, I, I, I'm going to throw this one at you because it, it um, was one of the first uh, – criteria that you mentioned there, and it's protecting legitimate business interests. And that sure sounds like it could be vague and broad. Are there are there certain parameters that the courts would look at to, to pr- say you have to prove what your legitimate business interests are? Yes. Uh, a restrictive covenant may be enforceable to protect a legitimate business interest of the employer if one of two things occur. The first is that the employer has a near-permanent relationship with its customers, and but for the employment, the employee would not have had contact with the customers, or the employee has acquired confidential information in the course of his employment, and the employer deserves to have that information protected. And it would seem, I, I guess I'm, you know, I'll keep coming at you with, with further definitions, it, it seems that almost every employee is going to come in contact with what would be considered confidential information. Are there are there certain definitions that help clarify what that item is as well? There is, and it's a pretty long definition. But <laughs> when you consider a, maybe it's a trade secret, um, okay. maybe that confidential information is a list of customers, to give a few examples. Okay. Yeah, certain things are, are specific and inherent to that to that organization. Um, a lot of great information we've covered already here today uh, for both employers, and we're going to talk about employees as well. Uh, it's uh, Lavelle Law Attorney Jennifer Burt that is uh, sharing this with us. Uh, and, um, you know, she does this not only with us frequently, but um, also by posting articles at LavelleLaw.com. Uh, great place for legal information on, on a, just a wide variety of topics. And it's worth setting some time aside to visit if you have any interest in the law or any particular needs on a legal basis. You can also pick up our past podcasts uh, that Jennifer has been on. Um, and those podcasts, of course, are also available on iTunes and, and here on Blog Talk Radio. And um, naturally, we, we can only cover so much. So at, at any point, a call to 847 705 7555. We'll always get you through to uh, any attorney at Lavelle Law. Um, we'll make sure you get to talk to someone during business hours on your first call. So um, remember that number. Keep it handy. But LavelleLaw.com, a great resource. Now, Jennifer, let's go back to what we mentioned earlier in terms of the, the scope of protection. Um, you mentioned geography as one of the factors. Uh, is there sort of a uh, reasonableness test there, too, that needs to be applied that says you you can say within this certain region, but can't just be a blanket statement? Yes. With respect to the geographic area, the courts will look to whether the restrictive area is the same or coextensive with that in which the employer is actually doing business. That will help to... that will help to ensure that that uh, the activity 
is this is the correct activity to be protected and it isn't outside of where the employer does business. Okay. And what about time? I mean, um if it's uh whether it's in geography or any other reason but but can uh can a uh, non-compete just be open-ended or is it generally for a specified period of time? You want to keep it as um within a time frame to meet what you're trying to accomplish as an employer. For your business activity, probably a year, two years would generally be deemed to be uh, an okay geographic area so long as the rest of the agreement is reasonable. Mm-hmm. And when you talked earlier about um, you know, some of the restrictions, um, do the courts allow, let's say, someone, whether they're in advertising or engineering or sales, pharmaceuticals, um, can you say you simply cannot work in that industry, or would it be more appropriate to say you cannot work in this particular segment of the industry, so you might go to a, another company, but as long as you're not doing the same type of work? Right. You want to avoid in any situation making a very broad uh, uh, limitation saying you can't work at all. Um, mm-hmm. So what you would want to do is limit it by the activity that the employer actually does. So you don't want to tell the employee that they cannot work at all in any field, but more so that they cannot work at all in maybe the engineering field. Okay. Um, now let's let's look at it from the employee's perspective. I'm, I'm sure in a in a tight job market like we've been in for the last few years, uh, the employer probably has leverage. People are looking for jobs, and and um, they're they're not always as plentiful as people would like them to be. But when you get down to negotiating, um, you had used the term earlier, um, uh, consideration. And let's talk about what that means and, and how that might be negotiated into a deal up front. The general definition of the word consideration in the legal concept is a bargain for exchange where something of value is given by both parties to induce the other party to enter into the agreement. An example could be money. Another example could be a promise. In this context, in the employment uh, context for restrictive covenants, the promise of employment at the outset could be consideration or continued employment for a sufficient duration of time. However, generally, Courts have held that continued employment for a term of two years may be sufficient consideration to make the restrictive covenant enforceable. And when we talk about this process, I assume, but I, you know, I, I don't want to make the wrong uh, statement here, that this, th- these types of actions are specific to an individual employee contract. So I'm hiring this person, and these are the terms under which I'll hire them. This isn't something an employer can just do as a blanket statement in an employee handbook or something and say, you know, all employees here are are not allowed to go to work or move under these conditions. No, you would have to create, unless maybe the employee signed the handbook and they had an acknowledgement Mm -hmm. of it, but generally you're going to see them as separate agreements, which would contain, you know, one of just maybe the non-compete, maybe the non-solicit, and the employer and the employee will execute these generally at the outset of employment. And the consideration is the actual offer of employment. And in terms of making sure that 
the, the right criteria are met and that the purpose of having this sort of uh, element in a contract is actually upheld in the long run. If I'm an employer, before I present a contract or try and institute terms like this, does it make sense to see an attorney who has experience like yourself and, and have them word the contract or look through it to make sure that it's something that will stand up in the court down the road before they even get anybody to sign it? Definitely, because if you have someone sign a non-compete and it may or may not be enforceable and you haven't taken the time to determine whether it is, you're going to be dragged into court um, oftentimes. That, uh, that employee, when they leave, is going to file something in court to determine whether or not it's enforceable. And then you are going to have to go into court and there's legal fees associated with that whereas it would be a much better idea to have the contract prepared by an attorney, make sure it passes muster, before you go toward the expense and time of having all of your employees execute the agreements, and then the potential expense and time of having an employee bring it to the court system to determine whether it's enforceable or not. And, and what about employees? Have you had instances in which they've brought proposed contracts to you and had you look at them? Is that something an employee might want to do when they're looking for, you know, probably more of an executive job, but make sure it gets reviewed before they sign as well? Definitely. And in any situation when you're signing an agreement, you would want an attorney to look over it. You know, oftentimes what I do is I get a, I get an agreement and I reach out to the opposing attorney and then I redline the agreement and we go back and forth with negotiations. Most of the time when uh, employees are coming in and signing these, they're just signing them, not really realizing what they mean, what the effect is. And if in you know a year or two years you quit your job and all of a sudden you can't work for the next two or three years, you want to know what you signed so that you know what your rights and responsibilities are after your employment. Well, uh, outstanding advice and uh, always helpful to have Jennifer Burt with us. We will let her go now and return to work at Lavelle Law, but um, certainly appreciate her taking the time and uh, sharing information with us. So once again, LavelleLaw.com, a great place to go for information, and you can give Jennifer or any of the other attorneys a call at 847-705-755, and uh, they'll help you out. Uh, again, more information available here on Blog Talk Radio or iTunes if you want some past podcasts and LavelleLaw.com for complete information. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Chicago's Legal Latte. If you have any questions or topics for a future episode, please call Lavelle Law Limited at 847-705-7555 or email us at podcast at LavelleLaw.com.